Welcome to the Text Lab, where every week we study the text and examine what it says. Our goal is really simple. We're just trying to equip you to take a deeper look at the text so that you would be able to be a disciple who makes disciples. Our hope is that the Text Lab would help you have a meaningful study, reflection, time with Jesus as you're hanging out in the Word. And I'm here with Jake. Hey, guys. Jake, how you doing? I'm great, man. My stomach's full of Jack's Urban Eats. Thanks to Kyle. That was great, man. I got a barbecue tri-tip sandwich. Yes, I feel like, I think there's maybe 30 people who listen to this, so we're not ready for sponsorship <laughs> yet, but if we were, Jack's Urban Eats, you, we, we, will, uh, we will advertise for you. If they would like to sponsor us, we can happily make that happen. Pay somehow. us in food? Yes, yes. And we will mention you every, every week. So, yes. Yeah. So yeah. we are jumping in back into Romans. Yes. Um, wrapped up Joseph's life amazing and we are back in the book of Romans and we're jumping into chapter nine you want to give us just like a a a reminder of what was going on in Romans and what was going on in Romans last time we were there yeah it's so good man I need to like refresh myself even on this because I've been so in Genesis and there's been so much from Genesis that I'm like oh I need to know this in order to understand Joseph's thing I need to know it so yes let's jump back in it's going to be awesome to to understand some Romans so Romans context written by Paul. He was, um, yeah, he's an apostle and he was converted on the road to Damascus, um, was a persecutor, was a Pharisee, was a persecutor of the Christian church, but was converted there, uh, by Jesus, had a personal interaction with Jesus and then, um, changed his life, his, his life altered, um, to then go and preach the gospel and evangelize and to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, um, as seen in the book of Timothy, as seen in Acts, as seen throughout all these epistles. And so now he's writing this Romans uh, epistle, and it kind of functions as uh, a theological foundation. And it's one of the letters, arguably, that has the most theology in it. Um from basically a holistic standpoint of just understanding sin and understanding salvation and Jesus and how all these things come together. And what we saw in chapters one to three is that no one was righteous. He made those claims that no one is good. No, not even one. Nobody can save themselves. And then as we moved into chapters three to eight, there was this turning point that says, but in Jesus, especially in chapter five, in Jesus, there's salvation. There is new life. The good news finally happens after those hard chapters to kind of get through. And now we're sitting in the end of chapter eight, where nothing can separate us from the love of God, dipping our toes into chapter nine. And chapter nine is the source of a lot of argument. It's the source of a lot of um, maybe election, predestination, free will, all (laughs) that. Yeah. Uh, gook that we get to soak in and and sift through as Christians, as we uh, sometimes like to argue. And so we're going to do our best through this text lab to hopefully um, give us a good foundation today with chapter nine. We're just going to be studying the first five verses, which we think does a really, really good job of having a solid heart posture of humility. And uh, I think what we were talking about in teaching team was that heart wrenching humility which is a really good place to start as we start to look at things like election or God choosing people or what's fair and what's not fair. Or if God didn't come through on his promise, if he did that question that Paul is, is uh, offering. And so a lot of hard topics. And what we would say as we dive into it is to read, um, really read all of Romans, but for this specific study, read Romans 9, 10, 11, 12 all together so that you can hold some of these verses um, with that, with that understanding. Yeah, that's really good. And so before we read this passage, maybe you can read it for us in a second, Jake. Yeah. I just want to try to set the table a little bit. So what he's going to wade into is he's going to begin to talk about Israel's role in God's story mm-hmm. 
after Jesus has come. He's going to talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles and Gentiles are just people who aren't Jewish. Right. Um, and mm. then he's going to talk a lot about God's sovereignty. And so this chapter might feel like, wh- what are we even talking about? Why is he <laughs> writing about this? Yeah. And I, I think it's just important for us to kind of as best we can try to transport ourselves back to the original audience and think about how they would have received this. And if you think about the Old Testament narrative, God has chosen Israel to be his chosen people. That's what he says in Exodus. They're going to be like a a, a whole group of people who serve function as a priest to the mm-hmm. nation. So priests are in, intermediaries. They stand in between God and the people. Israel had its own priest, but the whole nation was supposed to be a priest for the nations. God wanted to bless Mediator, yeah. Israel so they could bless the rest of the nations. Um, but now the Gentiles are included and they can be part of God's family. And there's a lot of um, Israelites who rejected Jesus. And so it could raise this question of what is going on? The whole narrative arc, Israel was God's people, but now we see them rejecting the Messiah. Is God done with Israel? If God is done with Israel, what does that mean about the promises God made? He said he would always be their God. Is God unfaithful? Could God change his plans now for us? So there's actually a lot of important implications. Implications, And as we'll see here, he's going to, eventually he's going to say things like God still has a plan. For Israel, he's going to save a remnant of them. He's going to um, bring them back. And so he's not done with Israel, but there's something unique going on right now. And so that's that's even where some of this is going to come out of. So hopefully that we can read it now. And that just uh, sort of lays the foundation. And what you're going to hear is Paul expressing, really like cracking open his heart, laying it on the Mm -hmm. table as he's reflecting on the fact that his brothers and sisters, his Israelite brothers and sisters, so many of them have rejected Jesus. And, And he's just kind of, opening in his heart as he reflects on that. Yeah. You want to read that passage for us? I would love to. Great. So we've got Romans nine, just the first five verses, five verses here. So here it goes. Um, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. All right. Man. So, yeah, you can see Paul reacting emotionally to the fact that so many of his brothers and sisters, his kinsmen, mm-hmm. have rejected Jesus. Um I'm curious, Jake, just as you're sitting with that passage, um, what what stands out to you? What do you notice? What do you see going on in there? It's great. I think right off the bat, it's the emotional heart of Paul. And sometimes when we think of theology or we think of understanding um, maybe systematic theology or having the knowledge behind it, we don't think of the emotion here. But Paul does such mm. a good job of worshiping in spirit and truth and of writing these things with an emotional... Um, What's the word? With an emotional foot in the door, I guess. Like he cares about these people personally. And if we look back at who Paul is, he knows these Israelites. He knows these Jewish people. He probably grew up with some of them. He probably has personal examples that he's thinking about as he's writing this. Um, And so what I noticed right off the bat is that there's great sorrow and unceasing anguish. He makes a huge statement in Mm -hmm. verse three. He's like, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Just massive. That's gnarly. That's big that's a big thing to say (laughs) i yeah man like i I love what you're saying jake it's like um paul 
is so profoundly grieved yeah. that these people he loves aren't following Jesus. And he says, if I could somehow lose my salvation so they could gain salvation, I'd do it. Well, I feel like that's gnarly. I don't know if I could do that. Yes, what I was going to say is like, <laughs> I don't know if that's in my heart. Yeah. But to your point, I think it's just highlighting something for us to, to uh, this, this deep heartbrokenness yeah. at looking at the lost is something that we should mimic. Mm-hmm. That's where we want our heart to be, that our heart is just broken, that we don't just walk past people who don't know Jesus and just kind of move on without our day, but yeah. heart breaks for that. Um, man, yeah, and yeah, I, I'm just, I'm really struck by how severe his statement is and how deep his grief is. Yeah, and um, it's so good because later we'll be getting into the implications of like what this means for us because you were saying before as we were just prepping, it's like there's no direct command from this text, but there are some serious implications for how we view people who don't love Jesus yet. And so as we like try and understand their town, we're going to dump jump into uh, our town later for sure. But that right off the bat is the thing that really sticks out to me. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. I have great sorrow. And I ask myself, like, do I have great sorrow? Do I have like anguish in my heart for these people, for my family, for, for people um, in my life? Yeah, that's good. You know? It's really good. And one of the things that we need to understand as we read all of chapter nine um, is understanding some of the promises maybe that God made. So asking this question of like, why is he writing this again? Like what, what's he talking about? And you did a really good job of understanding um, of helping us to understand like, are God's promises changing? What happened in the old Testament that made the Jews now say like, well, is he forgetting about us? Is he leaving the nation of Israel to choose some other people? And the answer is no. No, this has always been God's promise. And I think you did a good job before. Maybe if you could share about how um, uh, the original plan was always to use Israel as that blessing. You were sharing earlier about yeah, that. Yeah, Do you yeah, yeah. Hit totally. that for a second? Yeah, yeah so I, I just think it's important to remember, and this might be even some of what Paul's addressing, is there's there's a lot of conflict between Jewish Christians or formerly Jewish Christians um, and Gentile Christians in the early church. And you could imagine maybe a Gentile feeling like, hey, God's chosen us. We're included now. You guys had your shot, but you're done. And we're <laughs> yeah. like, we're kind of the new favorite kid. You missed kid. it. You missed it. Totally. Yeah. Um, and and you could imagine um, an Israelite Christian saying, no way. Like, you don't really have a place here. We're, we've always been God's chosen people. Yeah. And so Paul regularly in his letters is calling these two groups to unite. Unity. And one of the things he's going to do in this Unity. chapter is he's going to affirm the Gentiles really are included but he's also going to say, but God is not done yet with Israel. Yeah. He's going to save a remnant and he's going to bring them home. Um, yeah, but but as we read that, I think just remembering Israel's story, which Paul is hitting on in verse um, four and five, he's just basically summarizing their entire history in two verses. He talks about how to them belongs adoption, the glory, the covenants, the, the law, worshiping Yahweh, the promises. But this promise, he's going to pick up on this in the next passage. This promise to Israel was that I will bless you so you can bless all the families in the world. God never intended to just choose Israel to be his own holy huddle and just neglect and forget about the rest of the world. The plan was supposed to be, I'm going to choose Israel and use Israel to reach the nations. And as you go read the Old Testament law, there were provisions for non-Israelites to join the people of God and become Jewish. And so God's plan from the beginning has always been to use a family 
and a people to bless the nations. And, and so that's, that's no different. That's, that's what was supposed to happen with Israel when Moses was leading. And that's still God's plan for us today is that he has a people. It's the church to bless the nations. Um, And as you, as you trace this thread, there's a, we were talking about this. There's a thread that starts in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you to bless all the nations. You go to Exodus. uh, He says to Israel, you're going to be my royal priesthood. So your job is to um, lead the nations to me. Mm -hmm. You make it here to Romans, and he's saying, um, there's this, sorry, someone's calling me, and you probably heard that. Um, There's this um, promise to the Gentiles now to be part of this family. And then Mm -hmm. you you go all the way to the Galatians, and what Paul is going to write is that God is still working with Abraham's family, but children of Abraham are people who have faith in Yahweh. It's not our literal blood. Yeah. That unites us as a family. It's the blood of Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus is going to say the same thing in Mark 3, where he's going to say, who's my family? It's not just people who share my DNA or my blood. He says, it's anyone who does the will of God. So in the beginning, God's plan was, I'm going to choose a people and a family to bless the world. That's still God's plan now. And his family, it's not marked by having Jewish blood. It is marked, we are marked by the blood of Jesus. And so yeah. that's going to be running in the whole background of this, this question of, who are God's people? And it's always been the people who do the will of God. It's really, really good. And that is something that I think I didn't recognize until we started diving into Romans and understanding a little bit more of the Old Testament narrative is that there wasn't a separation that was like, well, I, there was a separation, but it wasn't an exclusion of like Gentiles and then Jewish people. And yeah. God doesn't care about the Gentiles at all. Yeah. That has never been God's heart. And what I see here as we're looking into this stuff is that is I see God's heart for people and his whole heart of redemption and being a rescuer and a savior and a, a, a someone who cares for the marginalized and the least of these, who loves the least of these. Um, and I see that in this text, as especially as we're looking through the last nine chapters of, of Romans, this is like, there's not a single one of us that are um, good. Yeah. There's no, there's no favoritism. There is zero reason to be above anyone else. And that carries massive implications for our town today. And Paul is just leveling the playing field completely. It's flat. Like there is no one above anyone. And it reveals God's kindness in his heart and his redemption plan from the beginning of history, from mm. garden, from the garden. Yeah. It's, and it's beautiful. And it, and it leads us, I think, into implications for like, oh, how am I supposed to live now as a sort of Israel in my own being, like I am a sort of nation, quote unquote, that's supposed to like bless others to yeah. be a, a person that has living waters overflowing out of my soul unto others to be a blessing to others, being blessed to bless others, I think yeah. is how I'm viewing my life now mm. and how ours to view our, our Christian walk. Can I do a little Bible nerd moment? Do it. Do okay. It. So this can yeah, flow into our implication. So in Genesis, we uh, humans are made in the image of God. And that word is this Hebrew word, selim. And selim is a word later in the Bible that is used for an idol, like uh, like a, a pagan idol. So a, a selim, an idol, is just a, it's a physical representation of an invisible God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a physical representation of our invisible God. Mm-hmm. And so in the ancient Near East, there'd be kings who would, they would build a, a statue, they would call it a selim, an image of themselves, put it in the center of 
the town. Maybe you conquer some far off land and you can't be there. So you build a statue of yourself, put in the middle of town so that everybody walks out and they look at the statue and they remember, ah, that's that king. And hopefully yeah. they, they probably want you to think he's so good and kind or whatever. Yeah. But I, I, lo- I love that idea that um, we are God's selim. We're his statues and yeah. he has placed us in the center of the world wow. so that the world's supposed to come out and look at us and they see Yahweh and they that. see that he's good. And so, yes, this, this, this task that was laid upon Israel's shoulders and actually began in Genesis to be image bearers is still the one we carry today. We are God's living statues who mirror him to the world. People should look at us and catch a glimpse of Jesus. Um, he's, Paul, Paul is saying the Gentiles are now part of that in a new way. God is not done with Israel, but that's us. That's what we're doing today is we're supposed to be living statues who mirror God to the world. Um, and, and part of that, to your earlier point, is that to be an image bearer, to be a living statue of Jesus, to be a replica of Christ, means that our heart should break mm. for the lost. And I think it's worth just pausing to sit with that question. Does your heart break for the lost? And... Um, when I sit with that, sometimes it does, but, but often it doesn't. And honestly, the reason it doesn't isn't usually because I actually don't care about these people, but it's because I'm caught up in some other story. My heart is latched on to some other lesser thing. Mm. And I'm just kind of like trying to build my own kingdom sometimes instead of building God's kingdom or I'm chasing comforts or whatever. And so that's, that's one of the main implications. You, you already hit on this well, but I, just to reiterate and underscore that, I think one of the main things we should pull from this passage is even though there's no direct command, Paul's heart, as it's reflected to us, is instructional. And it's teaching us, mm-hmm. this is this is what, what it looks how like. you're supposed to relate yeah. to the lost. This is how your heart should break for the lost. But for me, that just means, man, I just have to keep being somebody who loves and treasures Jesus and seeks first his kingdom instead of seeking first my own kingdom. I think as I sit in there and start to look at that stuff, when I recognize that I'm, I guess, writing people off or saying like, someone else will love Mm. on them. Someone else will disciple them. Someone else will have a conversation with them. Um, I think it roots itself in my heart as a lack of understanding of my own. Um, the, the, it's a lack of looking at my own story and understanding just how sinful I was and and still am but the depravity that I that I had and that God that God saved me from that that he pulled me from death from the pit and not understanding my own my own stuff enough often I think when I'm looking at other people um and not feeling that heart-wrenching sadness or whatever um it's because I don't I don't I'm not rejoicing full of thankfulness of the salvation that I have mm-hmm. it's like a lack of I guess a lack of joy or a lack of staying anchored in the fact that I'm saved and I don't deserve it for any reason. And there's no like letting my foot off the gas of understanding my salvation. You know, that's that preaching the gospel to yourself every day mm. and sitting in that um, meditative comp- contemplative prayer spot of saying like, Oh man, Holy crap. Like he's holy. I'm crap. <laughs> like there's this tension. Um, I'm there. And so I think for me, an implication from this is like, check your check my heart like look at myself and and be like is my heart breaking for this person that even like might be irritating you know Mm. or like it might be so hard to love there might be extra grace required for this person but then it's like 
I look at myself and I'm like, I'm that. <laughs> and like, Jesus has unex like immeasurable patience with me. I'm that person. Like, there's no reason for me to be arrogant in that way, you know, as I look at myself. And I think that's the humility, the heart-wrenching humility that Paul has here. He says he's the foremost of sinners. Yeah. He says he's the worst. And like, that leads him to have this heart-wrenching sadness for, for the lost because he understands himself, I think. Um, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. One last thing I'll say before we wrap up is I think um, just as we be, we live as learners and students of the Bible, verse four and five, Paul's listing Israel's history. And then the last thing he says is to them belong patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so he tells their whole story from their adoption, the covenants, the promises, the law, all this stuff. But then it, it ends with Jesus. And I think it's just a good reminder that um, Jesus, when Jesus comes, it's not God giving up on one story and saying, mm. you know what, this didn't work with Israel. I'm going to yeah. start a new story. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises, covenants, even the law, he says he fulfills. And the whole story has been pointing to him. Right. Um, and so as we read, as we just as we read the Bible, one of the reasons we must read the Old Testament and be students of it is because it's teaching us actually about Jesus. And it's tempting to be like, yeah. ah, that's all a bunch of old stuff. And yeah. here's Jesus. That's the good stuff. But the Old Testament, when we understand it, it actually helps us understand how good Jesus is, what a treasure he is, what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and so Paul's reminding us that the whole story has always been about Jesus. And that's why God is just doing this continuation. And and that is our story as well. And so when we read God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that's actually a promise that we're still living into. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to go bless all the nations. God still wants to bless every family on earth. Yeah. And he's going to use his church to do it. It's really, really good. Yeah, that those promises are our promises now. Like they're not yes. just the Jewish promises. Yes. That's massive. Yes. That, and that's why we read the Old Testament. It's like, this is our history. It's not yeah. just their history. Like, Good. this is personal. Um, this is where we have come from. And so um, that's really, really good. Well, whether you're working out at the gym, cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, I want to talk to. I, I just really hope somebody's mowing the lawn listening to this. <laughs> Driving your car, whatever you're doing, uh, thanks for listening. We hope that this helps you feel equipped and encouraged. Um, find us on the patio to ask us yeah. about things that we said the heresy all yeah stuff. everything yeah <laughs> totally yeah as always do your own prep read all of Romans 9 read all of Romans so we can understand the textual implications of this as we apply it to our time alright we love you guys catch you next time <laughs>